0: We're starting a three-part mini-sermon series on stewardship, uh, namely financial stewardship. And uh, this, this morning in pre-service prayer, I was just aware that we need to pray into this because this is something that can be so close fisted in people's hearts, and that's why Jesus spoke about money, I think, more than any other topic. Uh, and, and so he, he knew that this was important in our hearts, and so... Yeah, let's uh, let's pray for David and ourselves. Uh, Jesus, would you speak through David by your holy spirit? And Lord, would you give us soft hearts, open hearts to receive your word with meekness in Jesus name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Addison. So this morning if you're taking notes, we won't have any screens up, but we will have A sermon title you can title your notes proportional stewardship proportional stewardship and uh, it's interesting that jesus spoke about money more than so many other things and we speak about money less than so many other things it's kind of a taboo topic that we just don't want to talk about it hits so close to home sometimes and yet i'm praying that god will actually give us joy when we think about this area because he is the god that owns everything as was it maybe during the prayer time, Jeff was talking about the cattle on a thousand hills, and they're somebody's cows, but God says they're His. And uh, as someone once said, God has all the money in the world that you need. You just got to find out whose pocket it's in. <coughs> Do you get that? Yeah, you know, when we talk about giving, and we talk about finances, we talk about stewarding what God has given us. I have to always start with my own childhood. When my father began teaching me at the age of six, and you've probably heard me say this before, but he had a pile of bricks that he had taken from one chimney and he went, wanted to reuse them on another house, and we had to clean the mortar off the bricks. So we had a two pound sledgehammer and a three inch flat chisel, and you would put it there and pop, and you'd knock the mortar off and then stack it up. And so dad said that he would pay us two pennies For every brick that we cleaned. So after I cleaned 100 bricks. I got 200 pennies. Well actually I got two dollars. And then he taught me how 10% of that was for the Lord. And how to tithe. And so the next Sunday 20 cents. I'm getting a bit of an echo here. 20 cents went in the offering for the Lord. Which of course reminds me of the story. I think it was Joy who told me. About the father who was teaching his son this. And he gave his son 10 coins and said, these nine are for your needs, and this one is for the offering on Sunday. And the little boy was happy. at a handful of coins and went running with his father. And as he went up over the bridge, he tripped, and the coins spilled out, and whoop! one went off into the river. Daddy, daddy, I lost the one for the offering. <laughs> and isn't that how we often think of our needs? And I appreciate what Rebecca brought earlier to us about, do we have an open hand or a closed hand? But we often think of, this is mine, this is mine, this... Oops, sorry, God, I lost yours. And, (laughs) And yet, that isn't quite the picture that the Bible gives us. And the scripture has so many different examples about generosity and about trust and faith. And there's no way that we can cover it all, even in our three sermons or in the past. But if you're interested, you might go to our website go to sermon archives back in the fall of 2010. We had about 10 sermons on all kinds of financial topics which are still as relevant today as they were then. So just uh, three little summaries um, as we look at proportional stewardship and a few personal stories mixed in. First of all, I want to mention that I am the senior pastor, but I don't know who gives. So in our church, the treasurer, the bookkeeper sees all that stuff. Elders can see it if they want to, but most of us don't. So as I'm speaking to you, please know that I don't know who's giving in our church and who isn't. So that's not in my mind. I only know my own life in that. I'm also aware that in our church, we have faithfully been tithing to the point of typically balancing our annual budget but in the past 5 years we've given about 2 million dollars more than that towards restoring the properties and so we are amongst some very very generous people and i should also say that while we don't know the i don't know the exact names of who's who it's not coming from one donor so when the the giving towards the property i think the first million was that was given most of the gifts are, you know less than $10,000 and it's spread out between all these people. So that's just a little bit of an overview. as we talk about uh, stewardship in general, our church in the last five years has been through quite a sacrificial giving above our normal uh, stewarding our normal tithing because we've been responding to God's call to restore these properties for the next hundred years. Just as a little bit of an opener, what is money? If you are explaining to somebody, I think I actually, I don't usually have cash, but I think I have a little bit of cash in here. Here's a 20. What is a 20? How would you describe it? Go ahead, shout out. A symbol for time and effort. A symbol for time and effort. OK, that's a great one. Anything, anything else you would say? Two drinks from Starbucks. (laughs) Talk about inflation. An artificial, um, arbitrary system of exchange. An artificial, arbitrary system of exchange. Awesome. It used to be stones. It used to be stones. Imagine that. It represents value. It represents value. All right. So when we talk about money, the... The, um, the definition I'm going to use is actually quite close to what Addison said. I'd like us to think about how money is somebody's time and effort stored up. So you wash my car, and then I'm going to mow your grass, and we'll trade. But we've got to keep track of it, so we write it down and say, here, I washed your car, and you owe me. Yep. And now that person has this credit. And someday I'll go and mow their grass and we'll be even again. But there's different ways. We might say minimum wage is what is it now, 16, 17 an hour, something like that? 16, 75 as of June 1st. 16, as of June 1st. So you might say typical starting wage might be about this, right? And you could say, well, an hour's worth of work, um, something like that. It's just helpful to think about because then you might say, well, that's not actually true, because actually some people have money in their account because they've invested. Well, but actually that's somebody else's time and effort that you were able to get a little bit of into your account, right? Maybe because it was loaned out and they had to pay back with more labor than what they would have normally, and we call that interest. And so there's different ways to think about it. But the first point I'd like to make about professional proportional stewardship I should have chosen a different title cuz I can't pronounce it <laughs> <laughs> is number 1 we belong to God. The foundation before you talk about what you do with your finances is that we belong to God. Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 verse 36 Matthew chapter 22, verse 36. Matthew chapter 22, verse 36. Jesus is being asked, uh, What is the greatest commandment? And so the teachers of the law are asking him, Hey, what do you think the best commandments are? Jesus says love the Lord your God with all of your heart with all of your soul with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. First and foremost is love God with everything. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And One of the things that we see in scripture is this foundational story of the children of Israel when they were 400 years in slavery in Egypt. And then we read how God said to Moses, when God called Moses in Exodus chapter three, we see his heart for his people in these words. I have seen, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying because of their slave drivers, I'm concerned about their suffering, so I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God sees his children in slavery and says, I want to bring them out and set them free. And then, of course, we have this amazing story through the whole book of Exodus of Moses going to Pharaoh, Pharaoh rejecting And the words go back and forth of, let my people go to worship me. And eventually, the people are free to go to worship. And it didn't mean they went to sing four songs. So worship isn't just the first 20 minutes of our gathering this morning where we sing songs. And loving the Lord with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your strength isn't just about loving God in singing a few songs that we sometimes call our worship time. But we see in the children of Israel that their whole purpose was actually in bondage to Pharaoh. And they couldn't use their strength and their mind for God's purpose. And so God was saying, I have indeed seen this misery, this injustice... This is not what I made. I made them in my image to rule and to reign and have dominion, to cultivate the land, to make it a beautiful place, to make this garden mine and to be stewarding God's garden. So I'm going to come and set my people free so they might worship me. And then the whole story unfolds with the children of Israel finally coming out and we read the rest of the Old Testament, always looking forward to this beautiful vision, which never quite is fulfilled because of this brokenness of sin. But it doesn't change the fact that it gives us a vision for what God has in mind. God is for us, not against us. God is not wanting us to be burdened down. God is not wanting us to be enslaved. And while we don't have Pharaoh, sometimes our financial bondage is a slavery and a burden that's too much to carry. The pressure that is on our people is too much. And the pressure that people feel in Vancouver because of housing has suddenly increased in the last five years and it's too much. And God cares. And so whatever we talk about stewarding what God has given to us, we have to start with this foundation. I don't belong to Pharaoh. I don't belong to debt. I belong to God. And I am one of those made in his image to be put in his world as a representative of him and as a dominion keeper ruling over and cultivating the land for his glory. And all that I experienced, if you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, all that they experienced in the Garden of Eden was the bounty of God's supply. What changed it was sin, And now we live in this time where we are free from sin and we're found in Christ. And our mindset needs to be that Jesus has come to set us free. And who the Son sets free is free indeed. So that's the first foundation that we have before we look at practicalities of money is to say we belong to him. It's actually very important because it also deals with the little boy who thought nine was his and one was God's. And we can sometimes get that impression if we think too heavily about Old Testament tithing and then we just bring it into our selfish mindset of like, okay, I do want to follow God, what do I have to do? Right, got it, I'll do that, now, done, now I'll take care of my my life. And so many people want to live that way because they misunderstand that it's all God's, it's all good, and it's all to his glory. And my heart, mind, and strength include my profession, my employment, and it's to his glory. Sometimes we even separate that mentality, and people have a mindset of, if I'm really holy, I will be really frugal, and I'll be a Mother Teresa, or I'll be a monk, or I'll be a whatever, and I'll have nothing, but then you're in danger of being like the servant that was given one talent and five talents and ten talents, and two of them used it, and one of them buried it in a hole and said, uh, I'm afraid I'll fail. And so we have to say all of our mind and all of our heart, all of our energy, all of our strength, all that I am belongs to him. Lord, how can I be productive in your kingdom? How can I be living to your glory? And that does include your daily employment. Whatever your responsibilities are that he's entrusted to you, whether you're financially paid for it or whether you're not, your time and your effort is for his. And so one might be paid in finances, while the other has time available to serve and love people in acts of service that nobody's paying them for. They're just visiting somebody They're taking someone to a doctor's appointment. They're taking care of children at home and they're not getting wages for it. All of these are still our time and our energy that we are stewarding on God's behalf. When Jesus talks about money, he's talking about that portion of our time that somehow others have given us these dollar bills of stored up energy and what we do with that. But all of our time and our energy is going to Him. So we belong to Him, first and foremost. Secondly, we tithe. I'm just going to say it simply like that. We tithe. But what in the world does that mean? Well, if you're new to the faith, you might think, is that some Old Testament farming tool that they had? A tithe? Is it like a pitchfork? What is a tithe? It's a tenth. 10% A 10% and the word got used a lot in the Old Testament it got used when Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek the priest of Jerusalem or Salem at the time it got used in Deuteronomy and Leviticus when they were laying out the expectations of their community but it's actually not very easy to say what it meant then is what it meant in the New Testament and it's what it meant for us because As you read through their time in history, we can sum up from the Easton's Bible Dictionary Dictionary, that actually what we read is three kinds of tithes. Every Jew was required by the Levitical law to pay three tithes of his property, one tithe for the Levite, one for use in the temple and the great feast, and one for the poor of the land. When we come into the New Testament, we followed about 4,000 years of written history And then we look at 80 years of New Testament history. They're not equal time periods. And it's Jewish people who have found a savior and are now telling Gentiles. And the Jewish people are still Jews and they're still tithing to the synagogue. And they're meeting in the synagogue. And so then it goes in three, four hundred years later. You can look at New Testament history, church history, and see how the church has done from then until now. It's a concept that I would just call proportional giving or proportional stewardship because the actual word tithing can't be exactly equated because when you're in the Old Testament history, you're reading about a theocracy. Some of what they were covering, your taxes cover for our society. And when you're reading about the tithing in the Old Testament, you're reading not just about a church in the world, but you're reading about a nation and how they were trying to do things. And it included the temple and the Levites. It also included what we call our social system. I remember when I moved here from the great freedom of the United States, and I moved to this social, <laughs> socialistic country, and we had a little two-year-old. And soon after I came, a $200, $300 check came in the mail, and it said, child tax benefit. What's that? And then somebody explains, because you have a baby, a two-year-old, and the government helps you. What? I'm the father. I can take care of my own kid. Who do you think you are? (laughs) By the next month, I'd gotten used to it. (laughs) So we can't read the Bible and exactly equate everything because they had a social system that is to be studied and admired and we can model how we think about things. What I love about the social system of the Old Testament is that it included dignity for the poor. It wasn't just all or nothing welfare. It was a way like the gleaning ideas of the wealthy farmer would make space for people to harvest in his field and they would deliberately leave some for them to harvest also, because they didn't have fields, but there's the dignity of them getting their own income. So we have all that to just say as background, we, like all of God's people for the past 6,000 years, continue to give a proportion of our income. And the word proportion is important because a tithe and that foundation is a different amount depending on how much your income is, right? And so... For the wealthy person to give a lot of money but it's only 1% of their income is not the same sacrifice as a poor person to give 10% of their income even though it's a much less amount. And what God's vision was is that all of us would have this mentality of I'm a steward of everything that God has given me and that includes deliberately taking a portion that's not for me. And it's going to go into his greater purposes. And it's going to go for the social system. It's going to go for the Levites in the temple. And it's going to go for, um, well, actually, the great feast. Now, let's just pause on that. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 14. It just gives you one more window into the bounty of God. God. Deuteronomy, near the beginning of your Bible, Moses is laying out for the people all the ways in which they should live now that they're free from Pharaoh and they're going to be God's people. And of course, God starts out with, I am the Lord your God, and therefore, and the Ten Commandments follow. It's you're coming into a new way. You're not under Pharaoh. You're free now I have purchased you, I have redeemed you, and therefore live like this. And then Deuteronomy follows. Go through to about verse 22 of chapter 14. Deuteronomy 14, verse 22. Just a few verses here. He's telling them how to live in their new way. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, your new wine, olive oil and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if the place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord your God and you can't carry your tithe because the place the Lord your God will choose is to put his name is too far away, then exchange your tithe for silver and take silver with you. That's the exchange of products for dollar bills, right? And then when you get there to the place your God will choose, verse 26, use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, anything you wish, and then your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. And do not neglect the Levites that are living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. At the end of three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your town so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners and the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied so that the Lord your God might bless you in all the work of your hands. It's a little summary. It's spelled out in lots of different ways in various other verses. But the part that I wanted us to capture was... While there's various types of tithes in the Old Testament, one was this idea of bring your tithe and have a party. What a tight-fisted, hard-nosed God. (laughs) If you have this mentality of God doesn't want any fun, and God just wants me to sacrifice and live frugally, you missed it. There was all kinds of different ways of giving that get spelled out through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and frankly, it's too hard to sort it all out 4,000 years later. I mean, some people have sorted it out, but I don't care that much. It's not the point. But the point is that in the midst of all of their giving was a major part of their tithing was, hey, once a year, we're going to bring a tenth, and when we come together, we're all going to family camp in Langley, and we are having a feast. And it wasn't, if you're visiting or if you're watching online, we have a camp coming up the first weekend of July where everyone is welcome to come and go camping. But unlike these guys, we are asking 100 bucks a person. Or no, 50 bucks a person, right? I think it's $50 a person. We're asking $50 a person to cover the cost of food. But in this time, we would just be bringing our chickens and our pigs from the farm. And we'd all be trucking them down in our cattle cart down to Langley and have a big old butcher hog roast And we would just have a feast and a party the whole weekend, and there'd be way too much food. Or if it's too much trouble to truck it there, you don't have a trailer, just bring some money, and we're just gonna have a massive party. Can you imagine? When you read the Old Testament feasts, keep that in your mind. Keep that in your mind. You read that they went for two weeks and had a party. With what? With the tithe money. With all of them coming together with the excess of their crop. And why? Because in that celebration, it was this praise of, look at what God has done. Look at the bounty that our God has given us. We're not under Pharaoh anymore. We're in this new land and the grapes are the size of basketballs. And it is just amazing. And look what God has done for us. And then we get together and we have a party with it. And no one felt guilty about, oh my goodness, we wasted so much money on the feast and we should have been helping somebody else. You know what? They did that too. But that wasn't the point. The point was there's a bounty that they're celebrating. It wasn't, we're so greedy, this is mine and we're going to have a party and nobody else can touch it because it's us. We're going to go out to Langley and have it by ourselves and in our own little spot. No, 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 no. This is the nation who was trying to take care of their poor and trying to take care of the foreigners. And then everybody come and have a New Year's celebration, a Canada Day celebration, a Victoria Queen celebration. What's our celebration? Those kind of things. (laughs) Family Day celebration. And they get together and the whole nation is included. And so what, what the Hittites are doing and the Amorites are doing and Egypt is doing we're going to party cuz our god has given us plenty that's the vision that some of tithing has in the bible some of tithing was in that vision and then you caught something else in here the levites had no inheritance of their own there's 12 tribes of israel one out of 12 were on staff that's interesting one out of 12 were on staff but don't equate that to a church because it did include city hall and you know army leadership and whatever else. But just think in terms of there was a group called the Levites that actually trusted God that they would live in the bounty or the want of the other tribes. And they had no control over their own. They would just say, we are here to serve and our life will be Uh, provided for at the bounty or the need of the other 11 tribes. And then you see times in Nehemiah or in Ezra where they hadn't been giving. And the Levites, instead of going destitute, had to spread out into the other tribes and get regular jobs because they couldn't do anything in the temple because there was no provision because God's people weren't interested in serving the Lord that way. And then Nehemiah or Ezra called them back to repentance and again provided for their common work together and their common temple worship as well. All these different va- aspects are in the Scripture. And we can't put it all together today except to say tithing is an idea of giving a portion of your income and, and uh, Christians from, or God's people from that day until now have been doing that. You heard one of my stories. I'll give you another one. Um, yes, at the age of six, my father taught me to tithe. At the age of uh, 19 or 20, I guess, my wife and I were newlyweds, and I was sold out for Jesus. And that meant that there's certain verses that would jump out at me, and I didn't know the rest of the Bible yet, but I was last known to this one. And one of those verses is, Don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. And so you give and you don't know what the left hand is doing and the right hand is doing. And how did that play into a newlywed family? We're not going to have a budget. Like, it doesn't matter that we don't have much money and that we're living in this tiny little one bedroom rental on the bad side of town where the police cars come and go all the time. It doesn't matter. We are just going to live and pay bills and work and do whatever and I don't want to keep track of anything because the Bible says don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Well, praise God for my older brother Jonathan. He's wiser than I am. He's a year ahead of me and he said, David, let me tell you what I've learned. Actually, if you commit to God how you will spend what he entrusts to you, then God will bless you. And he gave me another little window on budgeting, which suddenly made sense to us. And so we began with our zero-based budget, where it just said, we don't know how much we need, but this is where our money's gonna go. And we gave ourselves some spending money too. We each had $5 a week that could be unaccounted for, do whatever you jolly well want. Which in today's interest rate is about $15. Is that what we figured out? So about $15 today, you say $15 a week, if you want to buy pop, if you want to buy two Starbucks, whatever it is, and that's how we started our marriage. It says, okay, we can e-spend $15 a week, or at that time, 5 and the rest of it's going to these particular categories. And then anything over it goes X, Y, Z. Do you know God blessed us from the age of six, and Tina the same in her family, 10% always went to whatever Loho church we're part of the ministry that we have, community with that group of people. And we didn't experience financial miracles. We didn't experience things falling out of heaven. But looking back, it feels like the children of Israel in the wilderness, where their clothes didn't wear out, their sandals didn't wear out, and their needs were just taken care of. And for us, that just meant no disasters hit, the car runs forever. Yes, I have a mechanic background that does help. But it was just like that, that we didn't live high. Our friends had new cars and made payments and went in debt. And we just lived simple. But we were free because we were free from consumer debt. And so we felt like our life is for the Lord and we can live freely because we're not under the bondage of consumer debt. And then we just lived within our means. And that came out of my brother saying, actually, if you show God how you're going to steward what he gives you, He will bless you accordingly. And we found that to be the case. Um, Throw in one more story. If you were here a year ago, our church uh, gave hilariously and generously to be able to pay for phase one of our daycare. And at that time, we did something that we've never done before. And we publicly said what some people were giving. We've always given in secret. This time, we lost our blessing, and we publicly talked about it. And um, it came out of a prophetic word of King David giving, and then his friends giving, and then the whole nation giving, and having too much. And out of that, if you go back to some sermon in November, you can hear the story. Look for the sermon on Nehemiah. And you'll hear that unpacked, the Sermon on Nehemiah in November. What? First and 2 Chronicles also. In that Sermon on Nehemiah, I explained to you that we had just had an elders meeting, and we were going to pull the plug on the daycare. And my wife and I said, actually, this is what God's spoken. We will give 100000 We just need 12 people to join us. And then out of that, others joined. And 30-some people put together 800,000 in about three weeks in January. But what you haven't heard is the update. And this is what I want to tell you. I assumed in November, a year ago, that with what was coming in and where we were at financially, we would need to borrow $70,000 from our home equity. Because we owned a house, we're suddenly wealthy. Because anyone who owns a house in Vancouver is suddenly wealthy we thought that we would borrow $70,000 from our home equity. What happened in the end was that somewhere in the summer, for about three months, we borrowed maybe $15,000 to $20,000 and paid it back. So what we thought was going to be a debt out of our home equity that we would pay off in the next five or six years, instead was a couple of months of just borrowing a tiny bit. And I just want to tell you that we didn't know that a year ahead of time. So it's just a little bit of a miracle story of how did that happen? Well, God already knew what he had coming in the pipeline that we didn't know about. And there was finances that came from other places and savings that we hadn't expected. And in the end, the sacrificial giving turned out to be not much of a sacrifice. So I just want to say that as a bit of a testimony of what we experienced in that. Um, And it ties into number three. So number one is we belong to God. Number two, we tithe. Number three, we steward. Number three, we steward. When we talk about stewardship and we talk about present-day Vancouver, we have suddenly come into this vast inequality between those who own land and those who don't. But the value of each person is the same. Some of us, if we happen to own before certain dates in the calendar, you're a millionaire. But your brain is no smarter than the guy beside you, right? Especially for me. Honestly, I am a uneducated farm boy that was called to follow Jesus. Didn't want to ever go to school. And I don't know, and I came from a poor family, very poor And we did not, we have never in our lives inherited any money from family. So we were just teenagers that got married. Well, I was, she's older. (laughs) (laughs) By four months. Arnold told me the same thing, by the way. Joanne's just a few months and he enjoys having the same situation. And so... We might have, some of us might have a career where suddenly because of what the market is doing in the health industry, every health worker is needed. Maybe that's a great career for you. Engineers seem to be needed everywhere. I don't know what else there is in the world besides engineers, but it seems like everybody needs to be an engineer. But some other people might have a career that the pay hasn't gone up. And yet when you give all of your heart and soul and mind to the Lord, you are giving just as much of your time and energy as the person who suddenly is a lot wealthier financially. And this is where the scripture comes in, that we have to say, but how does God see this? Proportional giving. We are stewards. And we all love this story in uh, Mark chapter 12, where Jesus is watching people give their tithe. Now, our elders don't typically do that. But unlike Jesus... Jesus sat down, look at this, verse 41 of Mark chapter 12, 4-1 of Mark chapter 12, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put in, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. I always think that's so funny. And can you just imagine if four or five of us just sat back by the debit machine and said, oh, not just who's there, but hey, how much did they put in? Oh, Dan Severson, oh, look what he put in there, Oh. I, this is just comical when I read this. But Jesus is watching what they're putting in. And many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins with only, worth only a few cents. And then calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty and put in everything, all that she had to live on. And that's the, the view that Jesus has, that God has of our giving. It's according to what we have, not according to what we don't have. And Jesus is watching what's happening, and he could care less if the overall bank account had lots of money or little money. What touched him was this widow was giving her heart and soul to the Lord. She was giving of her ability. We see the same thing in 2nd Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. We don't have time for the whole passage, but if you turn to 2nd Corinthians, Paul is actually talking or writing to the Corinth church about this collection that he's in the middle of giving, of taking up with a whole bunch of churches in the regions because of a famine in Judea. So he is in Gentile land asking for offerings to give to Jewish people who are in a time of need in Judea. And he's making preparations and going to great extent and sending people ahead to get the church ready so that when he comes, the offering's there. He's telling them stories about how the church in Macedonia had given so much when they were such poor people. And then look at verse 11 and 12 of chapter 8. In the midst of these two chapters of stories of fundraising, verse 11, he says to Corinth... Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do so might be matched by your completion of it according to your means. That's proportion. Verse 12, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, but that there might be equality. And at the present time, that your plenty might supply those who are in need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it's written, the one who gathered much didn't have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. And you have this picture in the middle of major funding and offerings being given, this picture of equality and this picture of value, that each person is of the same value, and he's not counting who gave $10,000 and who gave $50. He's just saying, let's just give according to our heart. And God accepts whatever we give according to what he's entrusted to you. You're a steward of what he's entrusted. And I want to say that it's actually more difficult for a rich person to steward than it is for a poor person to steward. It's more difficult. Because when we were on our, we call it the duct tape budget, the $5 a week budget. When we were on our budget, it's called the duct tape budget because one time Tina's shoes needed duct tape until we had money to buy new shoes. Honestly, there was money in the kitty for something else, but no, that was for something else, and we hadn't saved up money for clothes yet. So, and I felt like such a heel when her dad says, aren't you going to take care of my daughter? And uh, he's a big German guy. Aren't you going to take care of my daughter when well, she got duct tape on her shoe for her. But that's how we were at that time. And whether we're at that time or another, it's easier at that time to give proportionally. Because you're stewards of everything God's given you, and you actually need 100% to pay the bills. And so all you do, all we did at that time, was we gave 10% to the Lord, and then we stewarded the rest for the bills. But when you suddenly inherit a million dollars because the house prices in Vancouver skyrocketed you have to say I'm stewarding much more than I need how Lord do you want me to do this and that is a bigger challenge for someone to to think about because you don't even consider when you're when you have no money you just give according to your tithe but when you have lots of money then you have to say Lord how do I think about this? And in that case, how do you think about equity and debt and all those kind of crazy things that are not easy to understand? And that brings us to Paul's uh, words in First Timothy. First Timothy chapter six, Paul has something to say, not just to the widow, and not just to Corinth, who's deciding how much to give in an offering, but in general to wealthy people. First Timothy chapter six. And one note, before we discount that we are not wealthy, we just have to take into account that we now have friends around the world. You and I are connected around the world in ways that 20, 30 years ago we weren't. And two weeks ago, when I'm sitting in the UK in, the UK in a conference, I'm around the table with my friends in Zimbabwe. Where Uh, inflation has gone through the roof. They are just as valuable as I am. And their mind is just as sharp as mine is. But their finances are in a whole different situation than we are. And that's true if you're buying Starbucks or if you're talking about property in Vancouver. Either way, we are of this 1% that is so rich compared to the rest of the world to think that we can spend money at Starbucks makes us rich right and so we have to all listen to what Timothy is told by Paul in verse 17 command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant just stop right there you could spend a whole day on that part of the verse right how is it that when we have financial success that our pride just goes through the roof right i achieved i've accomplished I'm secure. Wow, we're stable. You just feel so good. And that's the very first warning. Command people in that situation not to be arrogant and not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. You wouldn't think that until 2008 and 2016. And suddenly a whole bunch of people felt uncertain about all their investments. They thought they were stable, and they just about thought the whole world's going to get turned upside down, and it just might. So don't put your hope in wealth, which is uncertain, but instead, put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, that is also an amazing statement. He doesn't say, and put your hope in God, who wants you to be frugal and poor and live on nothing, and you're an idiot if you have something. He doesn't say that. He's telling you, don't put your hope in your money. But he's at the same breath saying, God gives us enjoyment. It's okay if you don't sell your sailboat. It really is. (laughs) But you better know it really is. He provides everything for our enjoyment. Verse 18, what should you do instead? Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, To be generous, to be willing to share. To do good, to be good deeds, to be generous, and to be willing to share. Why? Verse 19. Because in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation in the coming age, so that they might take hold of life that is truly life. Put your head around that a minute. What you do with your wealth actually does make a difference with eternal foundations. That's amazing. How you handle your wealth, and whether you put all your hope in that, or whether you just don't let your left hand know what your right is doing, and you freely give, freely it was given to me, freely I'm going to give, Lord, how do you want me to steward this? Lord, what do you want me to do with this? And as you do that, it doesn't matter that the person around you does or doesn't know your circumstance. God sees. God sees. And you are doing something eternally for your future. Jesus said the same thing, didn't he? Matthew chapter 6. We just have to end there. The famous, famous Matthew chapter 6. Do not worry about anything chapter. Verse 19 Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he's again talking about our finances and he's saying, where you put it, your heart's going to follow. Where you put it, your hope is going to follow. You can put it into God's purposes, or you can put it into your short-lived little life. But our life is like a vapor. It's going to come and it's going to go. And even in that lifetime, it's so uncertain. And he's commanding us who are wealthy to actually use it for good deeds, to use it for his purposes, to steward proportionally what he's given us, to invest in heaven instead of in the stock market, and to lay up treasures in heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there's too much to understand in one sermon, but we want to thank you that you are the generous, bountiful God. We see that you created the heavens and the earth. You didn't spare on the stars. You haven't spared on the sunsets. You have lavishly given us these beautiful mountains around us. You lavishly give us rain. You give us crops. You give us all that we need for our provision. Lord, you give us more than enough. And to your glory, Lord, you've called us to steward this for your purposes. To sometimes be at a family camp where we feast in the bounty and we rejoice. And to sometimes be with the poor where we alleviate needs. And to sometimes be ourselves the poor who need to be alleviated. And Lord, we have, heard, we have learned the secret of being content in all situations whether we're in a duct tape budget or whether we're in millions. Lord, it's all yours. And you're the one that sees our life. And Lord, you have not said that we're more valuable because of what's in our bank account or because we're stable or not stable. And we just want to be before you as your people to be faithful and to shine in your goodness and to be a testimony of this bountiful God who cares for one another, cares for us, Lord, would you come and speak to us in our heart and mind. Each circumstance is so different here in this room. And we pray for those that are currently in financial need, that they would know your provision and your bounty. We pray for those that have life easy right now financially, that they would know your call to stewardship, to be rich in good deeds. And we pray that the combination of this would make you famous in our world, would draw people to follow the good God,